Okay, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 5 tonight. This is part 6 of uh, about 12 that we're going to look in total, the various chapters in the book of Daniel. So tonight, uh, as we look at this chapter, um, the idiom that uh, is often used, uh, the handwriting is on the wall, comes from this chapter. So that's often found as a, an expression, even in our own day and age, handwriting's on the wall, is found in this um, confrontation with a king uh, named Belshazzar. So I want you to look uh, here on the left side of the screen. Here's the risky resistance of Daniel so far a refusal of food, a refusal to bow down to the statue. Um, there is the reversal of uh, fortune prediction uh, that he gives, uh, as we looked at last week, where uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has this dream and he, uh, it's interpreted that all the prosperity that he is experiencing is going to be lost and he goes crazy for a while. And then all of a sudden, here in chapter 5, there's a new character that is introduced to us. Uh, in verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar. I'm going to comment on uh, that just uh, in just a moment. But there is uh, another interpretation here that Daniel's going to do, not of a dream, but this time of a finger that writes a message on a wall that... Um, turns the king pale in appearance, and the text tells us uh, that he soiled himself as a result of seeing this. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> and then the outline of the chapter here is uh, the revelry of the powerful, the hand of judgment, then an introduction to a new individual to the text uh, that is not named, but is, uh, is called the queen, and then Daniel stands before King Belshazzar, challenges him. Uh, the judgment uh, is predicted. Uh, he interprets the handwriting on the wall, and then there is a fulfillment of the prophecy. So you can see, again, it's another lengthy chapter. Here in Daniel, all these chapters are pretty lengthy in terms of telling the story. Sometimes there are elements that are repeated, Sometimes there's not. But again, what you have here is a pretty lengthy description and some vivid description of what happens. So let's dive in and let's take a look at the first four verses. Uh, it says here, King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So again, there you see why these uh, ch these chapters are lengthy. Um, every person that is mentioned is mentioned more than once in the chapter. Here it's mentioned a couple of times of who is present at this party. 
Now, the question is, what kind of feast is this uh, that's going on? It's, this might be a, a feast uh, to celebrate the new year, or it could possibly be a feast of coronation. The problem is uh, this particular introduction of Belshazzar goes out of sequence because here we are told uh, that Belshazzar is ruling uh, and his predecessor, as it says here, is Nebuchadnezzar. The problem is it does that does not correspond to uh, either Babylonian or Persian records. And what we think is true is that Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and he is the son of a, uh, a King Nabonidus that we said had left uh, his rule for a while, went to an area called Tima, and that would have left Belshazzar in charge, not as king, but as kind of a viceroy uh, until he would come back. It is from Nabonidus, though, that we're told from Persian records that Cyrus defeats and seizes control of Babylon in 539 BCE. So why King Belshazzar is introduced here to be the one that is in power when the kingdom is lost is one historical footnote that is questioned. What we find here, though, is a setup uh, that is very reminiscent in some ways of something that we've already seen before, and that is pride, um, the, the flaunting of wealth, uh, power, all that type of thing. The feast also is reminiscent of, of the book of Esther when the king uh, brings his wife in to dance before all the nobles of the kingdom and so forth. So what we think is happening here is kind of a cultural ritual uh, where a massive banquet is held where important people are invited, where there are people that are to be impressed uh, by um, what is being done, what is being served, uh, the entertainment that is provided, all that type of thing. A lot of things are the same today uh, within pol politics, uh, the way things are used to make connections and that type of thing. What scholars think might be going on here is an oral tradition about the fall of Babylon that is also found in uh, two historians, uh, Xenophon and Herodotus. Um, the, the record of the fall of Babylon is also recorded in King Cyrus' uh, cylinder, one of those uh, cylinders where historical uh, notations are made. And Cyrus will give uh, the credit to his victory over Babylon to uh, the god uh, Marduk. And so um, all of these things have led scholars to kind of wonder how much of this is kind of based on oral tradition that might not have all the facts necessarily correct. But what we do find is the message that is being portrayed is consistent with the rest of the book of Daniel, because the uh, emphasis that we see in the book of Daniel is on God's sovereignty 
over the power and kingdoms of this earth. So with that in mind, verses one through four tell us what happens. Uh, Belshazzar is going to revel in his power by doing something that would uh, be very offensive to the Jews, and that is to take the vessels and to use them and abuse them through their excess. So this particular party is more than a cocktail party. It's a drinking party, and they are drinking wine, and all of them are getting under the influence of excess alcohol. And it's interesting to note that it's not only the kings and the nobles, but also their wives are included. And then a couple of times in this paragraph, it also mentions concubines. It is very possible that this could have been also a sex party as well that is going on. Um, and it's interesting that the Babylonian policy, when they conquered people, was to take all their religious icons and statues and so forth and bring them back uh, to their empire and and then use them for whatever reason. Now, in this case here, it's to flaunt their power, it's to flaunt their wealth, um, that type of thing. If you, uh, if you want to turn over to the book of Ezra for a second, keep your thumb here in Daniel chapter 4. And go over to your left in the Old Testament, back to the last of the historical books uh, that are in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, and make your way to chapter 5. So here is how Ezra records this um, as he is trying to bring people back into solidarity uh, with the covenant that God had made with them and desire to rebuild the temple that had been uh, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, here is a letter that is being written to a, a King Darius, it tells us in verse 6. That's going to be interesting as well, because there is no, outside the Bible, there's no mention of any Darius. So what some people might think is going on here is Darius is another name for King Cyrus. Um, sometimes kings would take their uh, take on a different name, sort of like the popes do uh, during their their reign. But here's what's interesting. Uh, Ezra is uh, writing this letter, and uh, it says here, come down to verse 11, it says, we are the servants of the God of the heavens and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. That's Solomon. But since our fathers angered the God of the heavens, so violation of the covenant, he handed them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. And then if you go over to chapter 6, verse 5, as uh, Darius gives the order uh, to uh, search the library in Babylon, they come across this. Verse 3 says, in the first year of King Cyrus, 
he issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt as a place for offering sacrifices and let its original foundations be retained. Its height is to be 90 feet and the width 90 feet with three layers of cut stones and one of timber. The cost is to be paid from the royal treasury. The gold and silver articles of, the, of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and carry to Babylon must also be returned. So here we see uh, more of a historical notation in the book of Ezra as to what took place. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple, carries off all of the vessels. They are being retained by the Babylonian uh, power structure. And now they're being carted out. And uh, if you come back to Daniel chapter 5, uh, they bring out all these gold vessels, and as a result, um, they desecrate them. Now, keep this in the back of your mind. We have said all along that the book of Daniel is using tales of contest from previous uh, generations to somehow encourage a group of people later that are also going through some of the same shame that these people went through during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel 5 is not really a tale of contest as much as it is a conflict between Belshazzar and God. And Daniel happens to be the mediator that will reveal what the, um, what the um, writing on the wall means. Uh, but there's no Jews that are being forced to participate in this, unlike they were to bow down to the statue as we saw in earlier chapters and so forth. So um, here we find this part of the story would have a lot of relevance to second century readers because Antiochus also will desecrate the sacred vessels of the temple uh, that had been rebuilt and Cyrus then returning these vessels uh, so that they can be in the temple of the Jews. So a lot of parallel going on here. And the story, I think, then begins to have very profound um, uh, interest as well as application for the second century readers. Does that make sense to everybody? So let's talk a little bit more about this banquet. So in verses two and three, um, the listing of the concubines uh, in defiling the holy implements is, I think, a part of not only the pleasure, but also the desecration. Uh, when we think about people who are being conquered, Often sexuality is used as a weapon. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that in the raping of uh, people throughout the history of wars by uh, those who, who have conquered. And these things are more than a moment's pleasure. They are also describing who is in power. And it is describing uh, who has control. So... In the course of this banquet, if it did in fact become an orgy of some sort, 
it would be greatly, greatly offensive to the Jewish people that consider this to be holy vessels, to be used in worship uh, to Yahweh. So what we find taking place is uh, it will soon uh, be the handwriting on the wall and the spirit of God is unleashed to reveal what the message is for this one who is desecrating. Again, a, a very apropos application would be to those uh, that are experiencing the same thing under Antiochus and, um, and his desecration, which is called the abomination of desolation in a couple of other places. But um, I like what uh, this writer, Tellyhard De, De Chardin, said, evil is the plaster which fills the cracks of creation. Uh, that just kind of hit me. Uh, that seems to be true at times, that the cracks in, in, our, uh, in the history of humanity seem to be filled with all this evil intent and misuse of other people and so forth. So... Before we get into the omen that is given, do you have any thoughts or questions? Okay, now we come to the hand of judgment. So at a particular moment during this banquet, there's a hand that appears and it writes a message. Here's what it says, verse five. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale. And what the literal um, uh, Hebrew says is the king's brightness changed. The king's brightness changed. So we would use the idea of being pale. And his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself. Another footnote here is a literal translation of the, well, it's Aramaic here, but it says that the knots of his loins were loosened, <laughs> that the knots of his loins were loosened. He peed himself <laughs> or more and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans and diviners. Okay, this is a repetition of what Nebuchadnezzar did. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Now, they might be bewildered because they don't know the language that is on the wall. Um, but what is happening here is there's this very abrupt uh, display that takes place and the the act itself terrifies him. He doesn't know even know what the meaning of it is at this point, but this strange appearance of this hand is unexplainable, sort of like the fourth person in the fiery furnace back in chapter three. What is this? Who is this? Is this an angel? 
that writes this message is this Jesus. Um, it, it says here that the fingers of a man's hand appeared. Um, so there's kind of a parallel that's going on here with chapter two in the sense that like his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he's confused and he's going to call in all the same people that his grandfather did. And there's the promise of promotion. There's the promise of reward. And in this reward, there's some parallels that are going on. Notice here in verse seven, it says, whoever gives me the interpretation will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain. You don't need to look at these references, but that's exactly what happened to Mordecai and to Joseph. Um, Mordecai is given a purple robe in Esther 8.15, and the gold chain is given to Joseph in Genesis 41.42. So again, it's kind of building on past events, and it's reflecting on God using Mordecai, using Joseph. Um, and who is God going to use here? It's going to be Daniel again. So what we see taking place is in verse 9, because they cannot interpret the hand of judgment, there is uh, terror, fear. Um, he, his face is uh, flushed. Um, and even his nobles, it says here in verse 9, are bewildered. They're scratching their head. The difference with chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar wants to know the interpretation of a dream. Well, that could have possibly happened on previous occasions. Although, remember, Nebuchadnezzar wanted not only the interpretation, but the content of the dream as well. I'm wondering if Nebuchadnezzar... Call, often called these individuals in, told them the dream, and they came up with some type of explanation. Not in this case here. This is totally unique. Um, none of them had ever seen anything like this before. So um, now they're bewildered. They can't make up what the meaning of this writing is. They don't even know what language it is. Um, and so... Um, He's going to do something, uh, and that is he's going to listen to the queen. Now, that's this is interesting. So now we're introduced to another character here. It says in verse 10 through 12, because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall, or literally, again, if you have footnotes in your Bible, the queen mother, it says, came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, 
the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel and he will give the interpretation. So the question then becomes, well, who is this queen mother? Um, is this his mother or is this his grandmother? There's different opinions on that. Um, the term here that is used for king's mother, Malka in Hebrew, uh, and Aramaic rather, has been taken to mean one who has an excessive knowledge. And what would she have an excessive knowledge of? Well, she's a previous generation and has knowledge of previous administrations and what they did when they came up against uh, difficulties. So there's this intriguing legend about the power of King Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Um, she was credited with um, great wisdom and that she had input in helping to uh, engineer Babylon's outer fortifications. Um, and it also it kind of, um, she also is kind of serving, at least in this chapter, with in parallel to Arioch in chapter two, that gives advice to the king. So this is interesting uh, because this queen mother seems to have some authority that's going on here, which probably means that Belshazzar um, is an individual that looks to her. Um, she's still living and and would look to her for advice because she's been around and has seen previous administrations and how they have dealt with these type of things. There's another interesting tradition. And that is um, Nebuchadnezzar's wife uh, longed for the forested mountains of Media. And of course, we know that in Babylon, the hanging gardens of Babylon uh, was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And the legend goes that Nebuchadnezzar attempted to please his wife by bringing in trees and plants uh, and to create this marvelous garden uh, so that she, she would be content um, where she was as they, they ruled this kingdom. So that's just a, that's just a tradition. Uh, there's no historical evidence of that, but it's interesting when you look into traditions to think about uh, the role that they've played in uh, various events, uh, in various uh, uh, things that archaeological digs have have uh, discovered, that type of thing, too. Any, any thoughts there? So she just kind of drops into the middle of the story, and then that's it. These several verses, that's it. Uh, but she is the one that encourages Belshazzar to bring Daniel in. Uh, for consultation. Any thoughts there? How old would Daniel be by this time? Well, he would be he would be getting up in age. Now, if he went into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court as a uh, young man. Um, this is his grandson. Though. Yeah. So, um, you know, most people think that Daniel, by the time he's put into the lion's den, which is 
the next chapter, um, that he is, uh, you know, up in age for sure. Yeah. So he's been around, you know, he's like Mitch McConnell. I mean, <laughs> just been, he's, he's been there forever now. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I don't know his exact age. I'll see if I can find that for next week. Any other thoughts? All right. So now we come to Daniel coming before the king. And we've said in previous studies that that is always a, a dangerous thing because the king can lose control and, and throw you into a furnace or next week throw you into a lion's den, that type of thing. Uh, so Daniel is brought before the king and it says here in verse 13, uh, then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel? So it's interesting that it appears that Daniel may have kind of receded into the background as administrations changed. It appears that Belshazzar is not familiar with him or doesn't at least have a working knowledge of him. But he turns to Daniel and says to him, are you, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. So even though he's never met the man, this verse is saying he's at least heard of him in the in the court tales. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around your neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Now, that's an interesting comment, right? The third highest, who's second, and who's first. This might be an, a, a little bit of a hint here that he's acting on behalf of his father, Nabonidus, who is in power and he's second in command. Or you could take it that the queen mother is second in command and then Daniel would be third. But it's interesting that Daniel's no longer second in command, that he is going to have the third highest position in the kingdom. So um, he's given a rave review by the queen mother uh, and uh, the king is going to question him basically and give him a job interview and see if he's able to live up to the task here. Now, Daniel, boy, he is in a precarious position here. He's being offered reward but he also knows that if he interprets this, it could cost him his life because the interpretation is not going to be fond. Uh, it's not going to be good. Um, so in verse 17 and following, um, we see this interaction and he gets very critical of Belshazzar uh, even before he gives the interpretation of the writing. Any thoughts before we go to the next slide? Any questions?
So now he's standing before the king and he's going to issue a judgment. In verse 17, it says, Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and your rewards and give them to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God gives, uh, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from the people. His mind was like an animal. He lived with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. There you see this theme is coming out. God's sovereign, you're not. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and you and your nobles, wives, concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. See the repetition which do not see or hear or understand, but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and controls the whole course of your life. So it's interesting what um, what Daniel says, very risky in what he is saying. He's confronting the king. He says some very um, uh, sharp words when he says, even your your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, killed anyone he wanted, kept anyone he wanted alive, exalted some, tore down others, and then his heart became exalted. And then he was driven mad. And then he says, you knew all this. You knew all this. And yet you have not humbled yourself. So I, this made me think of Nathan before David, um, where... David uh, is given a parable by Nathan, and uh, it becomes his judgment. Um, in, this, in a sense, that's the same here. Uh, the power that this man carries, the hatred and violence that this man carries, is much like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I think it is overall a display of the capricious nature of the Babylonian kings and what they did to their conquered people. Um, and yet the hope for the Jews who would know of this story later is that God is the one who can bring down the most powerful. And, um, and the irony I think here is that Nebuchadnezzar finally changed his heart and he was restored to his position. That's not going to happen to Belshazzar. When judgment comes down, it's going to be um, for good. And that's because he has all this knowledge available to him and yet he ignores it. And so thoughts there?
So judgment is going to be when he then speaks up and says, you, Belshazzar, you're the one, you're the one that's uh, mistreating the vessels, mistreating the people by desecrating them and so forth. And so like Nebuchadnezzar's exile with animals, Belshazzar is tainted with all kinds of injustice. Uh, and um, so the redactor who is putting the book of Daniel together in the Maccabean era is interested in, in allowing this story then to fall on the shadow of Antiochus Epiphanes. I think ultimately it's to give hope to the people, but also uh, in many ways, a warning there uh, to uh, in their their uh, historical situation too. So what I find amazing here is the confrontation and and the courage of Daniel when we think about his ability to speak up and instead of giving some, you know, wishy-washy type of explanation uh, to Belshazzar. He stands up in his courage and he confronts him. So thoughts there, anybody? So here's the message. There's this very mysterious message. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. Verse 25 says, this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, mini, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mini means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficit. Paris, meaning that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, what's interesting here, if you look here on the, the screen, uh, these are Hebrew words that are being used here. Mini, or is related to the word mina, which is uh, a word for uh, coinage. So this is um, often referred to a large weight uh, that uh, then becomes kind of the idea of counting or numbering, sort of like counting uh, the money uh, that your bank teller does. Um, then tikkol is a Hebrew word as well, which is one sixtieth of uh, a mina, and it's related to another verb meaning to weigh. So to count, to weigh, and then parson is related to a word paras, which means a half a shekel or a, a divide. So if you take currency and you might say something like this, um, you, have, you have a dollar and then you have a quarter uh, and you divide that quarter and it, you have, you know, 12 cents, uh, 12 and a half cents, that type of thing. So it, it's kind of from larger to smaller, but it is also built upon the idea of 
the weight. So it's like a coin or size or weight of a coin as well. And as it goes down, it's descending in value, this, these metals. If you look at verse 32 um, in chapter 2, it says that as well. Um, it says here, only this time it's in this colossal statue that the value is going down. Um, the head of the statue is pure gold. Its chest arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs of iron. And then you get to the feet of clay. Descending in value. That's kind of the same idea here. And scholars think that the repetition, a uh, meanie meanie take on Parson, um, the repetition of meanie is to have four counts just like in the statue okay the different metals so um meaning meaning take a parson uh basically means you you have you, you know you're not living up to um the value of the position that you hold uh and as a result of that god's gonna remove you from that position did I explain that okay? Did that make sense? So different values, different weights, a meaning being repeated so that it kind of corresponds to the four metals in the statue, uh, which kind of represents the descending value as well as those that are going to take you down, basically. <clears throat> All right. Next up, the interpretation. So beginning here in verse 24, you have the inscription, and then um, you have the interpretation. And then um, you have Belshazzar responding. Uh, and this is something that I find interesting. Here we have, if we, as you read in verse 29, that Belshazzar is going to actually promote him. So what I just told you, and I didn't change the screen quickly enough, was what is seen here on the screen here. Descend, uh, descending value. Um, other scholars believe that the words have been borrowed from the money changers. Uh, a certain rhyme that was heard in the marketplace during the fifth century. Uh, and in the present form, this is an epitaph of, uh, of the destruction of his kingdom. Um, the four scholar, I mean, the four kingdom motif is debated by uh, scholars, but the monetary terms uh, shows that basically he has spent all of his um, his worth. He's he's worth nothing now. So it's kind of like his life has been audited, and as a result of it, he doesn't live up to what he could be. Okay. So let's ask a question: What is the sin of Belshazzar here in the story of the banquet? In the desecration of the vessels, um, we see, I think, the abuse of conquered people in their culture and in their values. 
it's unfortunate. Um, I think it really is true. War is hell because in battles, people's lives and identity are stripped away. And here we see that insidious element of imperial power that uh, does not care. All they care to do is take, take, take. And um, that's why they take the vessels of, uh, of um, the temple in Jerusalem. So an interesting side note here is um, the, the idea of defeat and destruction uh, are never enough for the powerful. They seem to need to glorify themselves with acts of humiliation. And it's interesting that Belshazzar will not humble himself, so God is going to humble him. Um, so I think sometimes what happens is the myth of superiority that you're all powerful. Nebuchadnezzar had that. Uh, Belshazzar probably thought nothing could happen to them. But what we're going to see in verse 30 is the kingdom is going to be brought down um, and uh, they will be defeated. And what once was a kingdom that brought terror into, um, into the Fertile Crescent area is going to be uh, humiliated. And so in verse 29, you finally see the fulfillment of the prophecy that Daniel is going to give. It says, then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, I find that it's interesting that Daniel refused the reward just a few verses earlier and now he takes it. I don't know what has changed, but he receives the a ne a necklace. He receives the robe. Um, and what I guess this is what is happening here is like any good folkloric tale, uh, the hero has to come out on top. So think about superhero movies. Batman, Spider-Man, those type of movies, in the end, they come out on top. And I think that's what the giving of the rewards is representing here. Even though Daniel's not as powerful as Belshazzar, he comes out on top. And then verse 30, it says, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, remember just a moment ago, I mentioned that, that there's no historical notation of a guy by the name of Darius, except in the Bible. So this might be one of those throne names, um, or it might be something that is, if Cyrus is Persian, maybe there was an individual named Darius because the Medo-Persian Empire is closely aligned, that might be some type of uh, uh, a co-regent of some sort. But it's interesting, there's no historical notations of a guy by the name of Darius. Here's one theory, though. Look down here on the screen. Darius the Mede was perhaps another name for a guy named Gubaru, 
which is referred to in Babylonian inscriptions as the governor Cyrus put in charge of newly conquered Babylonian territories. So there's another theory there that maybe Darius the Mede is no is in historical records, but under a name uh, Guberu, who is a governor over some conquered territories. Be that what it it, it 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 doesn't really matter. The message of the chapter is the same either way. But I just like showing how, what people or what scholars what they face when they when they um, do exegesis of the text and and that type of thing, trying to put the pieces together. All right, one more. So what do what do we learn here? I think uh, what's interesting is the assessment of God's graffiti. Um, like chapter four, the story is still about the sovereignty of God. And God has the power to bring about his kingdom, even against the most staunch resistance. So in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is going to repent of his pride, but Belshazzar does not. Uh, and so his destruction is kind of up front and center. And it just might be a way of saying to Jews that are being mistreated um, under Antiochus Epiphanes that God can bring him down as well. I think there's another thing that's important here. If you contrast Nebuchadnezzar and you contrast him with Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar had the common sense to come to his senses and to repent, and Belshazzar does not. And I think that plays into a subject uh, when we think of prophecy, when we think that everything is kind of determined because God predicts it, human free will is an interesting intersection with that. Um, if people turn, if people repent, if people change their mind, does that mean it's still determined that God is going to do it the way he wants to do it? Or does that in some way uh, avert some of the things that we're seeing here in the book of Daniel? So it's something to keep in mind, I guess. And I put it this way here, the determinism of the apocalyptic ideology is not as all pervasive within the book of Daniel as it might first appear to be the case. Um, this is going to, this point, I think, is going to be very important in the latter half of the book of Daniel because so much end time eschatology is built on the book of Daniel. And it's almost as if everything is predetermined and there is no averting it. And yet here, even in the book, we see a contrast uh, between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, when Nebuchadnezzar does turn. Um, so just keep that in the back of your mind um, what, as we get to some of the later chapters. 
So here's what I want to finish up with. The editor uses this cultic offense that has taken place as a way of reinstating the main theme that the gods of government are not God. They might be in place for a while, but there's only one true God that sits on the throne. And um, if we can keep that in mind when we see all the people in government in our own day and age, hopefully we'll realize that um, we have the power uh, to assess and vote and change that leadership. But even then, uh, God is still in control and God is still on the throne. And I, that can be a great encouragement to all of us, even when we scratch our heads at where things are going at times. Do you have any thoughts, any comments, any questions, uh, any insights that you might want to? So it's an interesting book, isn't it? It's um, filled with all kinds of fascinating tales and and points and subpoints. I think. Mm -hmm. You're a quiet bunch. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, next week, we come to Daniel in the lion's den. And that's the last chapter that's written in Aramaic. So we said chapter one, Hebrew, chapters two through six is in Aramaic. Then the rest of the book of Daniel is in Hebrew again. And, uh, and then you get from these court tales in the first six chapters uh, to the um, prophetical section uh, in the la latter part of, of the book of Daniel. So, any last comments? Okay, well, if I don't see you this weekend, um, uh, have a, a good Labor Day weekend. And, um, and for Beth and Mark, uh, remember we're going to go out to eat uh, at Trader Jack's, and hopefully we'll have good weather and we can sit uh, beside the uh, could be it's supposed to be hot. It's supposed to be really hot. Yeah, <laughs> maybe ninety. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, wear, well, wear shorts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll see you guys. Have a good night. All right. Thanks, Thanks, Bye. Bye. Bye.